This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. people hello it is actually saturday saturday march 12th uh i know that because i'm seeing uh dua lipa actually tomorrow so i'm going to a concert tomorrow which is going to be super exciting i haven't been to, i actually like thinking about it now i haven't been to a concert since probably no since definitely like august of 2019 so it's been a long time it's been almost like what is that three years at this point so yeah three years right before covid hit so that's exciting going to that tomorrow but behind and i actually haven't recorded a podcast actually in probably about I would say at least two weeks. So it's been a while since I've been behind the mic of one of these things because I recorded uh, last week's episode, which is basically a throwback post to one of my ones that I wrote in 2020. I recorded that right after I recorded my last conversation series or after I kind of you know recorded the last blog post. So I guess it actually has been a little over two weeks at this point because I recorded the last new post on Friday, two, two Fridays ago, so 15 days ago. And, you know, it's been a really, really busy week preparing for that. We actually went back into the offices this week. We kind of did, you know, a bunch of stuff with return to office, all that other shit. Things going back in terms of, you know, being, me being, you know, overwhelmingly busy with so many other things. So, um, got thrown off the schedule a little bit. So doing this on a Saturday afternoon, we got, you know, just a lot of shit going on. So I wanted to, uh, make sure that I had the appropriate amount of time to get this done because I've been wanting to write something like this post for a long time. And I honestly, like if I'm being candid with you, I don't know how it turned out. I don't know if it was, if it, if it's good, if it's not good, if it's whatever, but I wanted to kind of flush it out because with all the shit going on in the world right now, I thought this is a very, very pertinent topic and it actually gave me a jump off point to lead in with a lot of stuff that never really gets talked about in the mainstream for a lot of different things, which is the stuff going on with Russia and Ukraine and stuff. And I will be the first to admit, I know next to nothing about foreign policy. I don't know why people think the things that they do or think the things, you know, that people should think about these things. I really don't fucking know. But I, like, I'm very confused about it. I don't know anything about it. But I do know kind of why I wanted to center on this topic and why I wanted to link it into kind of what I want to talk about today, which is kind of a really interesting thing as someone in the business world, seeing things that I have a business and I work at a large company. So I have been seeing it kind of more on the entrepreneurial side and the corporate side, more specifically the corporate side, which we'll get to later in the podcast. But I wanted to kind of write this as a jump off point because I think it really illustrates it in both the most horrifying and the most vivid way. You can probably say within all of the things that have happened in this arena in all the shit that went down with COVID and the, and the unrest in 2020 and everything else that kind of happened in terms of all of that other stuff. So Without further ado, let's kind of just uh, let's get into it and we'll see 
what happens. So crises are funny things. They seem to come up almost out of nowhere. Stranger still, they almost seem to happen right as one ends. Lots of people talk about them, mostly people whose pockets and ratings need them in order to survive. This does not mean that they are not crises, but it does mean that there is usually more than meets the eye. The last month has seen both the death and the rise of the two most recent crises in the world, the coronavirus and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. About a month before this, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was threatening to seize the bank accounts of truckers while calling all of them Nazis. Now, it seems, that is no longer a worry. You will not be called, called a swastika humper if you choose not to wear a mask nor disclosure vaccination status. We're past that, it appears. Now that the beer virus has been officially ended by world leadership, a new one naturally had to take its place. And right on cue, one did. Russia did what it has been threatening to do since the end of the Cold War, invade the country of Ukraine. After the Soviet Union fell at the end of the 1980s, lots of Russians and their leadership slash dictatorial class, most importantly the former KGB agent that currently runs it, has been on a personal mission to restore Russia to its former glory. Seeing the consequences of several years of the United States and world stage weakness, they finally took their shot to claim it. Vladimir Putin, the current president and totalitarian that runs the nation of over 140 million people, decided to throw all his chips to the center of the table and go for broke. The invasion of Ukraine was a move not just to restore Russian Soviet Union glory. It was a move to restore the totality of Russian glory. Putin did not want to simply be in the same class of Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin and Gorbachev, arguably the two most evil men to walk the earth over the past 150 years. Instead, he wanted to be Ivan the Terrible. He wanted to be eternal. He didn't just want Russian dominance. He wanted immortality. And a key distinction must be made here. Men cannot be immortal. It's irrational to think that they can be. But Vladimir Putin is far from a rational man. Many people in his inner circle are coming to the grips that, with the fact that this is not a sane individual that they're dealing with. He's a crazed power monger. He's a psychopath. He's, overall, a terrible excuse for a human being. Many don't think he has a soul. Most of those, think many think that he lost it a long, long time ago. War is the most brutal experiment that humans can embark upon. There must be constraints. There must be rules. If not, the world that the war envelops will devolve into madness. There are plenty of examples throughout history that show what happens when this advice is not followed. None of them turn out, turn out well. From William Tecumseh Sherman's total war in the antebellum South to the Japanese military's rape of Nanking to the sacking of Troy, an unhinged war is a brutal business. It doesn't just defeat people. It destroys people. It remo removes humanity in the favor of victory something that is never wise to do. Vladimir Putin and those who support his ambitions for immortality are falling into this trap. They're committing war crimes. They're absolutely obliterating whatever they touch. They're destroying Ukrainian history. They're murdering women and children. They're lighting fires in nuclear power plants in an attempt to not just repeat Chernobyl, but to make a worse one. They want to raise their own version of hell and put it on Earth. And so far, unfortunately for the Ukrainians, it's worked. But there have been two methods of resistance to this hell. One is coming in the form of U the Ukrainian people, led by, led by President Zelensky, whom literally everyone hated for the past seven years, but that's beside the point. They've put up a phenomenal fight. They've shown tremendous resolve as a nation. The fact that the Russians, supposedly the biggest threat to American dominance in the world stage, hasn't toppled Ukraine is nothing short of both sensational and embarrassing. 
It shows you how little substance the claim itself has. This is not 1940s Nazi Germany. It's more like Guy in his 40s who still attends his high school's homecoming games, this ex-wife's adopted child. This is what we should be focusing on. We should be helping the Ukrainian people by throwing all of our support behind a nation. But, strangely, this is not what we're doing in America. We're putting up an alternative method of resistance. But like all quote-unquote alternative methods of nearly everything, this one has a common root. Narcissism. Throughout the last month, the single biggest enemy of the Russian military has been a strange one. American capitalism. It seems like on almost a daily basis, there is some new Fortune 500 company, quote, suspending operations in Russia. And these aren't your local mom and pop shops. This is Microsoft, Netflix, Nike, and so many more. They're all, quote, taking a stand. They're not going to, quote, tolerate what Russia is doing. This has been heralded as a brave and courageous thing to do. And to play devil's advocate, it is technically the right thing to do. But there are two fundamental problems with this logic. The first is the lack of foresight and the consequences that these actions will take. In any war, the real people who get hurt, besides obviously those who get emotionally, mentally, and physically injured or killed during armed conflict, are the small and the weak. The oligarchs don't get destroyed when empires fall. It's always the little people that get hurt the most. The United States economy, and the rest of the world to be fair, has, in the span of one month, completely decimated the Russian economy. The Russian ruble lost over 30% of its value in a single week. When that happens, inflation also spikes by 30% and probably more for most, some things in the inverse. Everything is more expensive in Russia now. The world has sanctioned funding to the Russian government, which has Putin's bankroll on a timeline. He will start to p steal from his own people to finance the, quote, war effort. This will also make his people poorer. The United States recently just announced sanctions that it's looking to totally cut off Russian trade. That will also make the people of Russia poorer. The world's multinational organizations have yanked an untold number of jobs from Russia. We've made every life worse for every single Russian citizen that is not in Vladimir Putin's immediate good graces. Odds are, when this will be over, he will be fine, if he doesn't end up dead, which is a very real possibility. But, much like the coronavirus, the little people of Russia are getting crushed by the near-singular doing of America's actions. Bad things happen in countries where people start to get poor and start to starve. They resort to desperate measures, and more importantly, desperate people. If we think Vladimir Putin is bad, we should get on our knees and pray that the person who comes after him to, quote, res rescue the fallen Russian people isn't worse. And in all likelihood, if we look at history, that person will be. Even though Vladimir Putin is a complete psychopath, it doesn't change the fact that we've done irreparable damage to the Russian people unnecessarily. Decreasing the amount of software engineers a software implementation firm can hire does nothing to get the Russian military to abandon Ukraine. It's insane that it even enters our realm of possibility. But, oddly enough, this has been lauded as many, by many, I should say, as, quote, heroic and patriotic. But in reality, it's something much different. It's a tool of economic warfare. It's going to lead to the kneecapping of a country for decades. Untold numbers of Russian everyday people are going to suffer terribly because of the consequences that we've put on their country. This is undoubtedly Putin's fault, but it's also undoubtable to say that we have made the problem worse. Which leads me to my second reason. Why in this specific incidence are we choosing our companies in this fashion, and using our companies in this fashion, to take a stand? Why are they doing it now? 
Why, instead of doing this to China, or the felons that burned our cities in the summer of 2020, or the government across the world that gut our labor, are we choosing to focus on this particular issue? Shouldn't others catch more of our hell? It's not like the United States is fond of Ukraine. All measures have said for the past couple years that we're not. Both sides of the political aisle have had immense problems with their dealings. They're far from a blameless and nonpartisan state. This certainly does not make them deserving of what they're going through right now, but it doesn't make them angels like any other country or any other person either. This is not simple economics. It's not the sale of goods and services. It's becoming something more, much more scary and much more dangerous. Business is no longer business anymore. It's morphing to become more powerful than we could have ever thought possible. It's affecting all of us in all of our daily lives more than we think, and definitely more than we know. The role of business, like the role of government, has massively increased in recent years due to our ever-occurring crises. The people that run them aren't as different as they'd like you to believe. And whether we choose to see it or not, the role of our economy is much closer to all of us than what we would like to believe. Excuse me, than what we would like to believe. So, naturally, the role of economics in the reshaping of our world must be discussed and dissected. It's becoming increasingly involved in our day-to-day lives. It's almost becoming like a quasi-government. The future crushing of the Russian civilians, most of whom probably never wanted this to happen, is prime evidence of that. It shows how powerful they really are, even though the final consequences have yet to show their faces. The main method that is being used to distort their impact in the world is forked. Anti-wokeness and wokeness and their insidious tentacles have penetrated the business world. Their effects are now being felt everywhere. Their allegiance is no longer to their customers and their stockholders, but to their ESG initiatives and their stakeholders, whatever those two things even mean. If one thing is certain of their meaning, it is that it is a Trojan horse. It is meant to distract you. It is meant to look nice and make you feel good. But there are very dangerous things that lurk within when you throw open the hood and look at what's really propelling the horse forward. To articulate that vision, we first have to understand the importance and the increased relevance of economics in the world. Next, we will look at how those two things have been corrupted by the two prongs of woke and anti-wokeness. Finally, we will look into the consequences that it is beginning and will continue to have on all of us. So now, let's get into the shit. Schitt's Creek has been lauded by many as being the last great network television show. With most of our entertainment now coming in the form of online entertainment and media, most of the investment that funded the great network television of yesteryear is gone. It's been reinvested into another, more profitable avenue. A large reason why most of all television, including the news media, sucks today is because of this. They can't afford to do better because they can barely afford to survive. When CBC put on Schitt's Creek back in 2015... It was probably its last breath before it finally keeled over and died. Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara didn't don't come cheap, it turns out. The show didn't just do well. It did phenomenally well. People love it and still do. It's been put in some, by some in the upper echelons of modern sitcoms such as The Office and Parks and Rec. Some have the nerve to say that it's even better than both. But I must confess, I've never seen the show, at least in its entirety. My mother has made it her lifelong crusade, it seems, to get me to commit to watching it. She's told me about it seemingly every Sunday on her weekend FaceTime that I just needed to watch the show. 
It was too funny, she said. I had no interest. Network television was garbage. Why would this one be any different? It eventually got so bad that I developed a revolving hatred of the show in its entirety. I was in no place to judge, but I did anyways because I was so fed up with hearing about it all the time. I just didn't want to give my mom the satisfaction. But eventually, it couldn't wait any longer. When I went home for Christmas for a week, my mom trapped me. She ambushed us, and we were all on the couch vegging out. <clears throat> vegging out, excuse me. My dad couldn't put up a fight. She had trapped him, too. But what was even more mind-blowing that he, was that he liked the show, too. I was in complete shock and disbelief. My dad didn't like anything about modern sitcoms. He hated practically all of them. I couldn't put two and two together. So, frozen by the sheer terror of crossing a mom who wanted to watch a sitcom with her family, we stayed on the couch and faced the inevitable. I braced for impact. I prepared my mind. And, as I would soon find out, it was something so unspeakable that I couldn't have possibly comprehended the scenario from occurring. Funny. The show was incredibly funny. I couldn't believe my eyes. I tried my best like the wannabe curmudgeon that I am to stifle my laughter. But my efforts soon proved to be fruitless. Schitt's Creek made me laugh more than I ever thought possible. I was hooked only after four episodes. It took all my willpower to stop watching in the moment and turn my attention elsewhere. I plan on revisiting it later. I thought about this occurrence a lot after it happened. Why did I turn out to be so wrong? Why did I find Schitt's Creek so funny? Why did everyone find Schitt's Creek so funny? I pondered these questions for the months after the show. I was unable to put a finger on it until I came up with the idea for this podcast. And after that, everything clicked. The central plot of Schitt's Creek is very simple. An incredibly wealthy Hollywood family loses all of their money and most of their assets. They're forced to relocate to the only asset they have left, a town called Schitt's Creek, which was bought by the father, Johnny Rose, as a gag gift to his son, David. Schitt's Creek is, as you can expect, in the middle of nowhere. The people that live there are much different than the ones in Hollywood. There is no Gucci store in that town square. Most probably wouldn't even know what it is or why the Roses would think it's anything worth knowing about in the first place. The usual hijinks ensue. Several sitcom storylines develop. Hilarity comes afterwards. It's not much different than any other sitcom that has ever been made in the history of ever. So, if the show is a relatively undifferentiated product, why the buzz? Why do people give a fuck? What makes it so special to so many people? The answer to that question lies in the theme of the show laid out above. The catalyst that sh set Schitt's Creek into motion is one thing. Money. The Roses are rich people who suddenly become destitute overnight. They have to adapt their entire lives. They have to reshuffle and rethink everything about their identity both as individuals and as a family. Everything they knew about themselves and what they formerly identified with, being rich socialites, has been completely obliterated. Money was the only thing that bonded them together. It was the only thing that they knew and could depend on. When that went away, their lives as they knew them did too. They have no skills. They do not know how to survive in a world that is not their own. This wild combination makes for highly entertaining television. While every display of satire is obviously a farce, the best ones are rooted in some sort of truth. While the fall and plight of the Rose family is incredibly comical, the reason it is so is because of one reason. Relatability. We all like to think that we're separated from the attributes of the Rose family. In many, and mostly unserious ways, we are. We aren't all former soap opera stars and Hollywood executives who suddenly have to live in the middle of buttfuck nowhere. 
But we all but we are all similar in the way that money and the economy that governs everything we do affects us. Money cannot buy happiness, but it can certainly contribute to it and many other feelings that come with it. It is better to have money than it is to not have money in most nearly all cases. The fact is inevitable, no matter how many well-feeling good, feel-good Instagram posts you see on a given Thursday. Schitt's Creek's relatability stems from this fundamental premise. The creators of the show saw a golden opportunity to exploit something that everyone thinks about and knows that matters, but they're afraid to say out loud. People are hesitant to talk about money. It might lead to some uncomfortable conversations or fear of judgment from other people. But that doesn't change the fact that money is as fundamental as anything above basic body functionality. It touches everything. It drives a ton of our decisions in life, from what kind of food we buy to what kind of hooker we can order to eat it with. It directly supports all of our value hierarchies and systems. Values are, by their nature, an investment. It's a reality of life that money is going to follow that same trajectory. It's one of the easiest ways to track what we feel is important to us. These things bind us together. They help to create a very basic and primal yet powerful way with how we can observe our interactions with the world. In fact, I would take this a step further. I would say that economists is not, economics rather, is not only a fundamental driver of society, but it is the fundamental driver in society. Money and social class are generally not thought of in terms of what most people deem, quote, social issues. It's a shame because it very much should be. Any form of group identity, gender, race, sexual orientation, whatever, can't even touch socioeconomic status. They aren't even in the same league. The justification for all this is in the same element we mentioned with Schitt's Creek, relatability. Relatability can have something to do with immutable characteristics, absolutely. People can relate to one another based on their gender or skin color or whichever sex they prefer to fuck. A lot of people do, whether they want to admit it or not. But there are also very wide disparities in each of these groups. The reason for this is because of individualism. The experience of each and every individual person on this planet is uniquely different from the next, whether they're of a similar identity group or not. Individualism is based on individual values. Individual values are largely drawn from experience. And this phenomenon is the linchpin of the argument. If experience is the key driver into seeing what people value and socioeconomic class states shapes a wide variety of experiences that we have in our lives, then this would drive a ton of movement within how people of a certain society interact with one another. Every single immutable characteristic goes away and fades once you start to experience something that doesn't go along with the narrative. So for example, I grew up in a largely middle-class suburb. We were surrounded by more affluent towns and more poor towns, but we were relatively the happy medium. Some things have changed since then, but back then when I was living there, that was kind of the situation. Not a lot of people were destitute or poor when they were in our town. It was relatively well kept. Our town was mostly white with some different ethnic groups splintered in. I had a lot of people who I played sports with and went to school with that were a different skin color than I was. If I were going simply by skin color, I shouldn't have been able to relate to these people much. In some ways I couldn't, but they were mostly for the same reasons that I couldn't relate to some other type of person. I didn't experience what they did. This was not defined by an immutable characteristic. It was defined by the fact that I was not that person. I was myself, and they were themselves. Social conditioning is a funny thing. We all up end up regressing to the general mean when we're with one another. Even though some people I interacted with were black or Hispanic or Asian, and we all had our differences, we were mostly all similar. Hardly anyone was ostracized for being, quote, different because, 
in actuality, not a lot of people were. We all drew from relatively the same well. There wasn't much room for differentiation. And frankly, it would have been more bizarre if we did. It would have been very bizarre if a black kid from a middle-class suburb suddenly acted like a thug from South Central Los Angeles. It would have been equally so if a white girl in the same situation who shot for jeans at Aeropostale started acting like Moira Rose. The same situation would have held true if a Hispanic kid started acting like either end of the spectrum of Bad Bunny or Tuco Salamanca. It wouldn't have been natural. It wouldn't have felt right. Not a lot of people like to accept this reality, but the reality is very clear. When economics and money are involved, relatability based on immutable characteristics effectively goes to zero. A poor black person and a poor white person will have much more in common than a rich white person and a poor white person or in the inverse. You can swap out any breed or brand of immutable identity in the world, and the same thing will hold true. Experiences shape our values and how we perceive the world. Our experiences are largely based on what we provide our families. What we provide our families is, usually, a direct derivative on the checks we cash on the 1st and 15th. One of the very few universal constants in this life is the constant of having to worry about how this happens in your life. Safadeyan Amos is the most author of numerous books on cryptocurrency, including the Fiat Standard, his most recent edition. In that volume, Amos argues in the, of the importance of cryptocurrency by slamming the system of government-issued fiat money, which he believes has slowly but surely degraded our quality of life from nearly every aspect of its existence. It's remarkable how plausible all of his claims are, no matter how outrageous they may seem at first glance. According to Amos, due to the extensive nature of government fiat money and how it perpetuates all levels of our lives, a claim which, as we know now, holds a lot of merit, it has allowed a centralized force, a governing body, to slowly but surely distort everything in order to control it. This is the main element behind Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. The biggest evangelists of this technology don't see it as just as a replacement for the dollar. They see it as freedom. And to that point, the, subtle, the subtitle to, to, to the fiat standard is, quote, the debt slavery alternative to human civilization. This argument is proving to be more and more correct. Institutionalized power in the form of these large-scale entities are threatening to devalue everything through their pursuit of greater control and influence. I'll have the risk of corruption. To illustrate, let's take a deeper dive into the hood of our current system of crony capitalism. You guys tell I'm struggling to uh, get through this podcast today? I can. <laughs> oh, okay. My apologies in advance for this. <laughs> the American dream is a beautiful idea. It's what has inspired and still inspires so many promising individuals to move to our country. It's the promise of a better life, a chance, a hope it's something better. It's a wonderful thing for a company to have such an optimistic spin on something. It may not work out for everybody, but everyone, because everyone and everyone's experiences, like we mentioned before, are different. But it's an opportunity that many people have taken a chance on, and many have succeeded. One of the more stereotypical aspects of the American dream, from a practical sense, is the prospect of owning a home. For decades, this was the goal of most American families. Get married, settle down, and raise kids in a nice house. It was the typical white picket fence story. It would be nice to have a place to hang your hat on at night. A roof over your head with people you loved in it. A place where you could have a reprieve from the world. In the olden days of America, these prospects were quite promising. Materials to build homes were cheap. Labor was plentiful. 
wages were high, families were a lot more prominent. This combination made the idea of owning a home a reality for a lot of these ambitious Americans. In modern America, however, the effect is working in reverse. Materials to build houses are now expensive. Labor isn't that plentiful. Wages aren't high, or at least haven't grown. Families are falling apart. People, especially in those in the market of buying houses, are not buying houses at the rate they once were. They have high interest rate student loan debt to pay off. They have to flock to a job in, the mo in an expensive metropolitan hub. They have a $7 Starbucks to drink every morning. The people in our current expert and ruling class understand this trend and are capitalizing on it. They're seeing what's going on in our society. They know that the average American is getting priced out of their own market that they once dominated. And they're acting upon it. BlackRock is the largest institutional asset management firm in the world, holding trillions of dollars in various assets all around the world. It's one of the most respected and powerful institutions in the world. It has a bigger market capitalization than of most countries of the world have in their GDP. BlackRock is run by a man named Larry Fink, who is viewed by many as one of the most powerful men in the world. Larry Fink has recently adopted a new moniker. It's not an investment strategy or a portfolio restructuring proposal. It's not saying which companies are good to invest in and which ones aren't. It's something that, for the longest time, was incredibly strange to hear coming from a man whose firm dominates global finance. However, it is the key to advancing BlackRock on the world stage. And that key is this. Wokeness. The moniker that Larry Fink has adopted is that of an advocate for something called ESG, or Environment, Society, and Governance. ESG initiatives are a hot topic in modern corporate America these days. In fact, they are so much so that companies are now being raided on them. Outside agencies, most likely controlled by somebody like Larry Fink, are now actively scoring companies based on their overall ESG scores. What exactly defines ESG scores are uncertain. No one can pinpoint an exact answer, it seems. Like a lot of common buzzwords you hear now, they're all sizzle and no steak. Larry Flink and BlackRock are now pioneering themselves into the future of this one strategy. They will not invest or tell other people to invest in a company with a low ESG score. They are also no longer investing in any company whose board of directors is at least not 30% quote, diverse. Again, what this means is unclear. Larry Fink and BlackRock have, had, have said everything without saying anything. This approach by BlackRock has been lauded by other people who share their opinions. They're, quote, futuristic, they say. They're, quote, leading the way and, quote, leaning in. All of these statements are correct. But the rest of the world deserves to know more. They deserve to ask this question. What do all of these things mean for the rest of us? And the answer is this. What it means for the rest of us is that they are now seeking complete control of the American dream. BlackRock has been on a buying spree recently. The thing that BlackRock can't stop salivating over is low-income housing communities. Over the time of the beer virus pandemic, Blackstone, the real estate arm of BlackRock, has pumped billions of dollars into cheap real estate in America. They spent billions of dollars to acquire entire neighborhoods, with them as the sole owner and proprietor. Bill Gates is doing the same thing with farmland. No one has batted an eye at either. And at face value, why should they? BlackRock is an investment firm. They're allowed to buy real estate. They're allowed to put their money in the type of assets that they want to. 
All of these things are true, but it's not that simple. The reason why is that you've probably never heard about it before. The two biggest times that I can think of are when Tim Dillon brought it up on his podcast. He's one of the few that can actually see it. You've probably heard a lot about Larry Fink rambling on about his privilege or the company's commitment to, quote, do better. You've probably never heard of their quest to monopolize low-income real estate throughout their institutional buying strategy. One thing has to do with BlackRock improving their investment portfolio. One thing has absolutely nothing to do with it. I'll let you decide which is which. Salesforce, the technology company run by equally disgusting elite Mark Benioff, has been on this crusade for longer. Recently, Salesforce announced that they've been trying, they were tying executive compensation to, quote, DE&I initiatives. They've long been advocates for this type of strategy. They're leading the charge on much of these happenings in the business world. But they have yet to explain why having an all-black accounting department that runs an outstanding P&L is a problem. They have yet to explain why an all-women solution engineering staff contributes negatively to executive leadership. Why an all-straight finance department can't make good decisions on capital investment. Or why they've completely monopolized the CRM software market in the process of pumping out all this garbage. You don't hear about these things at all. They're drowned out by Mark Benioff's incessant shaming of those who don't bend their knees to his moral superiority. They should know better. In our quasi-free market society, and many like it, markets are driven by that central thing we discussed in the last section. Money. Money is the central reward of economics. It's why companies exist. It's why entrepreneurs found them. It's why people want to work for the best ones. It's the way our system works. Whether you like that system or not is irrelevant. What matters is that it works, and it has for a very long time. But corporate heads and their allies in the government, who have led the way on this push, are starting to realize a new way of things working. That new way is to focus on, quote, non-business-related initiatives and objectives. They have substituted efficiency of markets in traditional capitalism for a false empathy. Woke and anti-woke capitalism, the former specifically in the case of Larry Fink and BlackRock, and the latter in terms of Russia and Ukraine, are indeed very real things. The great hypocrisy behind all of this nonsensical nonsense is that they are doing explicitly what they are telling you that they are not doing. They're gaslighting you. They're saying things that are not related to business and creating more market share and profits. They're saying things that they're caring about something that isn't about increasing their power when it is directly doing so. It's a bait and switch. This has been done before. Business has profited off of doing it in different ways since modern capitalists knew that they had the reach that they did. This is not the fault of capitalism, because it's a neutral thing. As always, it's the bad actors that have corrupted the system that must be held accountable. The 2008 financial crisis was a direct cause of this. The big banks and credit rating agencies knew of the allure of the American dream as well, a lot like BlackRock and Larry Fink do. So, instead of holding people accountable and responsible for their obligations to achieve it, they decided to lie to them. They extended loan after loan, compiling bad debt after bad debt in order to get rich off of people who should have never been investing in a home in the first place. Who are you to say that Americans shouldn't own a home? What are you, trying to keep people impoverished or something? These are the things that they said. These are the lies that they told. In The Big Short, the great film and book about the great crisis and how it came to exist, Steve Carell's character Mark Baum speaks a great truth about this fallout of the catastrophe. Quote, They'll blame immigrants and poor people. 
And that's exactly what happened. That's exactly how people were able to spin the 2008 financial crisis. Only one person of the big banks and rating agencies went to jail for the complete obliteration of $8 trillion worth of American money, most of it coming from the American middle and working classes who were lied to by the insatiable greed of the people who ran the banks and credit rating agencies. These people obviously had personal responsibility in this case. No one can make you invest into anything. But at the same time, you have to hold people more accountable for malice than ignorance, at least in my opinion. The people who lied got a government bailout. The people who got lied to got their life savings wiped out and their homes foreclosed upon. You can guess which one ended up having a better time in the aftermath. The current threat we face in 2022 is very similar. It's a massive transfer of wealth from the middle and working class to the elite institutions of America. It got accelerated during COVID. All you have to do is who, look, who lost money and who gained money during that time. There's nothing wrong with gaining money. But there is something that is unsettling both about the disparities that are growing wider in American life and the means by which they are caused. The divide is growing bigger by the day, which should concern everybody. To quote Jordan Peterson, Societies can only take so much inequality before they start to destabilize themselves. He's correct. In some ways, this has already began. The shipping of production overseas to other parts of the world is a direct consequence of this. It devalues labor by cheapening American work, which puts a further emphasis on massive and empty consumerism. This is largely nothing for Americans other than to make us less wealthy by convincing us, falsely, that we have to pay out our universal tie together money, for shit that doesn't do shit for us in the slightest. It only does something for those it really enriches, those who peddle these products and services based on anything but those products and services. Confused yet? Who wouldn't be? There is a massive ramp-up of the consolidation of corporate and monetary power, mostly by those disingenuous measures to ensure its perch. This hasn't been attempted before in American life, and here's what's going to happen if we allow it to take place. I saw Jordan Peterson speak live on the very first event of his most recent tour on January 25th of this year. It was such a remarkably positive event that I was almost in disbelief. Besides the two dudes in front of me in the line talking about how to quote crush it in digital marketing Ponzi schemes, it was great to see so many folks there for great and noble reasons. I struck up a conversation with one of his event staff members who followed Dr. Peterson around for everything that he did. He said it was like this at every event. Normal people who wanted to become better. I found great joy in that statement. At his first tour after his life was hit by a train, or before his life was hit by a train, Dr. Peterson did the tour with Dave Rubin, the famous comedian political commentator. Dave Rubin has spoken numerous times about how meeting Jordan Peterson completely altered the trajectory of his life. He has for a lot of people. However, I would argue that Rubin has been his most ardent supporter out of those folks. On that inaugural tour, Rubin would come out, do a couple of bits, and speak to warm up the crowd, and then Peterson would take the stage. On this tour, Peterson chose a different opening act, that of his daughter, Michaela. Michaela Peterson runs her father's business, and also has become famous as an influencer and podcaster, mostly in regards to the controversial lion diet that she swears by. 
Both Petersons have spoken before at how this incredibly restrictive diet has drastically improved both of their lives, Michaela's most drastically. Being involved in the ongoing culture war in the West, Michaela Peterson has also spread her wings to include discussions of current events and cultural issues. It has slowly but surely filtered into her topics, with some going viral. When she opened for Dr. Peterson on his tour, she leaned especially heavy into this part of her brand. The topic that Michaela Peterson chose to focus on for her opener was the overall subject of awareness. She opened with her life experience and how her father had instilled in her from a young age a set of qualities such as the questioning of authority and mental resilience. In our current cultural narrative, these two issues could not be more important. Michaela chose to focus on several topics that fell into the, that category for around 15 minutes, hitting on several key and notable issues that are happening in the world. One, however, struck me as both the most disturbing and the most informative. A couple of months before the tour kicked off, Michaela Peterson hosted author and mathematician James Lindsay on her podcast segment, Opposing Views. The structure of this segment is to take an issue and get two different perspectives on it, both happening at different times. This allows both participants to voice their opinions fully without the threat of interruption from the other person, which is then disseminated onto the audience as those two separate segments into one big segment. This is a remarkable idea strictly for the fact that ideas can actually, you know, be exchanged. James Lindsay is most famous for being one of three people, alongside Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose, to take part in the infamous Grievance Studies Affair. Over a relatively short period of time, the trio published 20 fake academic papers for publications to academic journalists, or to academic journalers. I should start over. Over a relatively short period of time, the trio published 20 fake academic papers for publication in academic journals. The topics, in short, were ridiculous. The first one, entitled, quote, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, was done with the purpose of making the absurd claim that penises were not biological, but a threat of social science that was set to enshrine, quote, toxic masculinity into mainstream society. The paper was accepted into a notable social sciences journal for publication afterwards. The other topics were similarly hilarious. One claimed that dogs engaged and perpetuated rape culture. Another claimed that men could reduce their transphobia by anally penetrating themselves with sex toys. Another one was, quite literally, a feminist version of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. That one was accepted for publication, too. Of the 20 fake papers, seven of them were accepted for publication, two were still under review, and six have so far been outright rejected. Lindsay, Bogosian, and Pluckrost filmed their efforts and released it to the public shortly afterwards. The fallout was astronomical. Naturally, academics in the social sciences community immediately sought to destroy the three individuals for exposing the blatant charade that has infected their disciplines. They were equally praised on their opposing sides for exposing the idiocy that has affected the American university system. Lindsay, in particular, has been a vicious critic. Even though he went through the university system himself and got a PhD, and is also an open atheist and liberal. He despises the modern insanity caused by the ESG and wokeism sources, and he wants to destroy it. Which leads back to the podcast with Michaela Peterson. Michaela Peterson pressed Lindsay in their interview on the ESG movement, something that she was unfamiliar with. What Lindsay responded with greatly disturbed her. Lindsay cited credible sources on how companies were being rated on their so-called ESG scores. Those who did well were rewarded. 
those who did not do well were punished. It had nothing to do with the quality of their products and services. It had everything to do with nothing about those products and services at all. Michaela Peterson was stunned by this. She promised to do more research and deliver her finding afterwards. Those findings were exposed in the opening of her father's show. It was the crux of her speech, the most important point that she wanted to stress. And Michaela Peterson's research findings were terrifying. China's social credit score system, in which citizens are rated up and down by the government based on how loyal they are to the state, had begun to trickle out of the authoritarian communist regime to other parts of the country, or the world, I should say. Greenland had started to implement something similar. It affects how people get loans, how they interact with their neighbors, their credit scores, whether or not they keep their jobs, and so many more things. It seems so dystopian, so Orwellian. But it's another thing as well. So real. These are real things. You can look them up on the internet, preferably DuckDuckGo for this type of information. The real war going on is the war against orthodoxy. There are people in the world, like all of the examples you mentioned so far, that are wanting to control everything. They want to extend their influence as far as possible. They don't want to cede anything to anyone. They don't care about anything else other than that. It's a game to them. But it's not to the rest of us. The vast majority of the people who will be affected by this will be affected in ways that are not at all favorable to most. Those who swear to think differently, to question any of these methods, to call out the obvious, are met with hostility. They are not welcome to the rest of the world. They don't get to participate in the conversation. They just get told what side of the conversation to be on, or else. In our modern times, there is something to be said for the embodiment of mercy. As Rick Grimes so beautifully said, my mercy prevails over my wrath. Mercy, the ability to restrain from attacking something or someone even when you want to or that may deserve it, is one of the great powers that human beings have within our minds. When you know that you can hurt someone, but choose not to, that is a power that not many people can honestly say that they possess. What I find to be one of the most disturbing elements about our current time is that there seems to be a complete lack of this quality. Mercy is perceived as weakness. You always have to be right. You always have to win. Notice that this is different from being right and winning fairly and with merit. Those two things don't exist in much of our discourse and interaction with our ruling and expert classes. There is no debate or discussion or fight. There's only right and wrong. But the question we should ask is, who decides what is right and what is wrong? Not a lot of people, particularly in the groups you've mentioned throughout this post, could answer that question, in my opinion. These people who espouse this mindset and view on the world don't want to answer it simply for the reason that they cannot answer it. If you don't agree with them, they don't have time for you. They don't care. You must be destroyed. Just like the Russian people who have nothing to do with, who have nothing to do with the devastation that they're wreaking on the Ukrainian people. It doesn't matter if they're innocent or not. They're on the, quote, wrong side of history. We must ensure that it's not kind to them. Additionally, in the non-Russian part of the world, this is raising enormous amounts of division among the people in the non-elite class. We talk about petty things like politics and worldviews like they're our favorite NFL teams, including beating them to a pulp like a drunk Browns fan in the Muni lot on any given Sunday. We argue over the most meaningless garbage that has little to nothing to do with what is actually time well spent, or things that provide value in our lives. Instead, 
We're brainwashed into talking about them due to the horrible combination of our own psychological weakness and those nefarious actors. What we refuse to see because we're blinded by our own self-imposed ignorance and narcissism is my central argument about our expert and ruling classes. They all play for the same team. They don't give a shit about any of this. The only reason they act like it is because we care about it, for whatever reason. Our nonsensical squabbling about complete dogshit garbage is the key to them enshrining themselves above this. It is why they can't have a sensical debate about ESG practices or term limits or anything that would be of remote relevance towards everyday people. They know that everything they're saying is complete fucking dog shit. They just want to distract you from it. ESG is a Trojan horse. It's a transfer of money and power to those who already have too much of it. We've seen what lack of sufficient economics does to a country throughout the course of the last two years. A pandemic and an increasingly unhinged society don't make for a good mixture. It sucked the wealth out of mostly middle and working class people and transported it to other places. It's gotten those same folks addicted to opiates and more dependent on the government. Most importantly, it's gotten people angrier. No one was chucking bricks through daycares in Minneapolis or storming the Capitol building before a lot of this stuff started to finally come to light. We shouldn't expect it to slow down, particularly since those in power have chosen to make up the new crisis of Ukraine and Russia after they shed the old one of the beer virus. The pandemic has now become a planned conflict. In actuality, what we should expect is a further clamp on our daily lives. If it's not ESG scores or anything of the like, it's going to come from something else. It always does. In the words of Kanye West, people generally don't have the power to let power go. All the rest who don't have it are going to be left at the mercy of those that do. And it would be wise to prepare for the consequences beforehand. We should care about the environment, society, and the governance of both. But obsessing over each of them, and particularly all three of them blended together, will lead to a blind march to mutual destruction. What started as a noble quest to become better has instead become an orthodoxious march to make the masses worse. Control and domination are alluring qualities due to the fact that they automatically enshrine you in, quote, the right. But what is deemed as, quote, the right doesn't always mean that it is. Deeper looks are necessary. Constructive questioning should be encouraged. Anyone who attempts to deceive you of either of the two has been equally deceived by greed and malice. To be set on the right path, we must take the one less traveled. There are new possibilities there. Some of them could be better. Most likely, they will be. But, to echo the words of the great and powerful Tim Dillon, a job at Raytheon and getting your mother hooked on pills probably doesn't further the goal. All right, everybody, that's my podcast for the week. So something I've wanted to write about for a long time, I'm very passionate about kind of this topic and where this is going to go. I find it very fascinating. So if you guys enjoyed it, I hope you did. I hope you at least learned something about all the shit that's going on. I think it's important to know about the stuff that's going on. So have a great weekend, guys. Have a great week ahead. Uh, new conversation series coming out next week. I'm really, really excited about this week's guest and really looking forward to bringing her on. First female guest, by the way. Looking forward to bringing her on and seeing what she can do. I think she's going to be great. So... Own the day, open your mind, have a good one guys, I'll talk to you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight? Shit.